0: You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And our guest this week on Talking Machines has been with us before, and I am very glad to welcome him back. Um, Michael Lippman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us.
1: It is a great pleasure. I uh, enjoyed my my previous outing, and, um, and a- after that point, you and I actually became close, and we've been working together, and so I feel very honored to be asked back, because you know now what you're getting, and I guess that means you think it's okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes! Yeah. Yes, it is fantastic yes absolutely full disclosure to what we have today is a cabal of communications chairs so uh neil and i were uh communications chairs for Nurep's for a while and then michael and i were communications chairs for Neurips last year probably helping out again this year um so yes so we can talk about all of those finer points of how we how we talk about talking about talking about scientific communication On this
2: week's talking machines <laughs> europe's communication chairs this is actually just one one of those little NeurIPS meetings where we're going to talk about for next year, how the press conference will be run. Exactly. Is, is that this is yeah. just an
0: org com meeting?
2: That's what I like it when you're doing something for two reasons at once, two two birds with one stone. We can get a get the communication sorted for this year's Europe's at the same time.
0: It's perfect. It's perfect. I love it. So, but Michael, I know we've had you on, uh, but uh, it's been a quite a while, and I think a lot has changed. Give us an update as to where you've been and sort of a little bit of run through of how you got where you are. You are at Brown now, and um, you're the co head of the Center for Human Focus robotics. Is that right?
1: It's called the Humanity Centered Robotics Initiative at Brown. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an organization that we tried to put together uh, shortly after I got to Brown with the goal of thinking about robots and in particular, trying to create robots that work with people for the benefit of people. And so it's not necessarily a machine learning thing, but of course everything now is a machine learning thing. So it, it pretty naturally segues into
0: that. Nice. And before you were at Brown, you were at Rutgers. Tell us a little bit about how you how you got to where you are and what you've been doing now, besides being in football commercials and and trying to help. Neil and I and everybody else in the org come talk about science and things like that. Yeah.
1: So, so uh, yeah, I had a, had a great time at Rutgers. I had a terrific group there. We focused quite a bit on uh, reinforcement learning and in particular issues in efficient exploration in reinforcement learning. So trying to make systems that could not only over time learn to get better and better, but could get better and better fast, right? So with with a minimum amount of of data, minimum amount of experience. That kind of wrapped up when I transitioned to Brown. And my focus uh, since I've been at Brown, a lot of my papers have been about human-in-the-loop reinforcement learning. So basically trying, and and this comes at least in part because of the Humanity-Centered Robotics Initiative, the idea of, well, we want our systems not just to learn to get better at things quickly, but also in response to what people want them to do. And so one way of telling machines what you want them to do is by writing a reward function that's the machine the the reinforcement learning way but i think you know, normal people don't sit around thinking about how to write reward functions it's easier to use the kinds of tricks that people use when they're training animals for example like you know good robot oh bad robot no 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 bad robot so uh, how can you use that kind of feedback the sort of positive and negative evaluative feedback that a reward function would give but have it come from an actual person kind of live
2: so does that mean Inverse reinforcement learning, or as in you have to infer what the human is implying the reward function is, or are there other approaches to that?
1: Right. So I would say they're related, but in fact, the the main difference, uh, the way that the inverse reinforcement learning is typically studied is as the inverse of the reinforcement learning problem. So the the reinforcement learning problem says, here is a reward function, use that to generate behavior. The inverse reinforcement learning problem is, here's behavior, what's the reward function that would have generated that behavior if you were thinking about reinforcement learning? So the input to IRL, inverse reinforcement learning, is behavior is examples of, here's, I was in this situation and here's, if you're in this situation, here's the sort of thing you should do. And an inverse reinforcement learning agent infers from that, oh, okay, if that's the thing I should have done, then probably what's going on is we're trying to, you know, minimize time on the hot beach and maximize the time, you know, in front of ice cream or whatever, whatever kind of fits with the behavior that's observed. The human in the loop reinforcement learning is humans giving reward signals, giving feedback, saying, you know, good job, bad job. Now, you could from that infer a reward function. And actually, it's not a terrible idea, but it's not the dominant one in the literature. The the The, the main thing that people do is try to use those rewards as if they were rewards and then run some version of a reinforcement learning algorithm to turn those rewards into behavior.
2: Okay. So uh, there's related approaches. I, would, would Would you classify that as almost equivalent to say model-free and model-based. I know that normally that's around the world, but where the model is now generating your sort of uh, your value function, or have I misunderstood? Well, so one of the first papers
1: to work on this problem of human in the loop reinforcement learning was a, a system out of University of Texas Peter Stone and Brad Knox and what they did is actually kind of a model based approach they said let's from watching the human give rewards let's actually estimate the reward function and then plan using that reward function so they actually directly estimate the reward function from the human inputs and so, in that case, it is sort of model-based,
2: but it's still not inverse reinforcement learning.
1: That, yeah, definitely not, because you know, inverse. So I, I don't know. As a computer scientist, I see things very much from the perspective of what are the inputs, what are the outputs. So inverse reinforcement learning inputs are behavior. In uh, human-in-the-loop reinforcement learning, the inputs are positive and negative signals.
2: So I guess a richer set. So in some sense, it, good and bad is whereas versus with the whole behavior profile is would, would be the difference.
1: Yeah. yeah. In the inverse reinforcement learning setting, you get a lot of information because you're, you're getting to see what the right action was, right? And just like the, it's almost a, more of a supervised learning problem in a sense, right? Because you're seeing here's what the right answer is. Whereas in evaluative feedback systems like reinforcement learning systems, you're just told, hey, that thing you just did, that's a six, I'm like, okay, six. Is that good? Like, well, it's less good than seven, but it's more good than five, right? So you're you're missing a tremendous amount of of richness of the information uh, in the feedback. So,
2: so why humanity centered rather than human centered? Yeah. So
1: that was a long debate we had when we were trying to get the thing off the ground. So the idea was that human centered is already a thing, and it typically means you know trying to design a system so that it interacts really well with the person that it's connected to and that's obviously a really important thing but we wanted to go beyond that to saying not only that not only do we want to act sort of nicely with respect to the person that I'm directly interacting with but we want the the repercussions of the system as a whole to benefit society as a whole so for example you know, we're going to be skeptical of a system where yes a person and a robot are working together to put 10,000 people out of work right like that's not the, the kind of thing that we would take to be our goal in the in the center.
2: So it's immediately making me think of is it zeroth law which I think was I can't remember its phrasing, but there was a, a later primary law that was that should always act to the benefit of humanity. every other one is about humans. Was that an inspiration or didn't register?
1: don't I don't think so but it but it is definitely uh we definitely were thinking along similar lines and since Asimov got there first you know it's hard for us to claim that we weren't influenced for sure but I don't think conscience
2: I think it's like a post hoc fix uh, but I mean obviously Asimov's laws that's one of the great things that actually I wanted to ask you about. I think it's funny because they keep mentioning the public sphere when, of course, they're a a way of creating great stories about how robots can go wrong. So they're probably not a great starting point for your entire system of robotics. But I think he introduced the zeroth law towards the end to sort of tidy them up a bit. But the thing that, as as I mentioned, that I was reminded of is I really enjoyed something you said at the uh, NYU Symposium which has stuck in my head for a long time, where the debate was around superintelligence and robots taking over. And the way you put it, which I 100% agree with, but I like the way you put it, is that you weren't afraid of the sentient killer robots. You were afraid of the clumsy, big baby style of AI. and That, that was your term, big baby, of uh, something that we do that is clumsy. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this was, I think, it was 2015 or 2016
1: uh, and we we had gotten together because it was very much i think this is just after the what i would call the deep learning revolution and and it would had it was you know now commonplace in outside of of machine learning for people to be talking about deep learning and 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 what it might be able to do and it's i don't know it wasn't clear it's still not entirely clear but at the time it seemed like there's nothing that it can't do and so we are now on the threshold of creating super intelligent machines. And so I think I think a lot of people really resonated with the concern that says, okay, well, what if what what if we win? Like what if we actually succeed at creating super intelligent machines? What does that mean for us? I think Bostrom, Nick Bostrom, who was who was there at the symposium, was the first to really really make a public splash with trying to explain how he saw the repercussions of these kinds of ideas. And and I was, you know, on the panel, I was trying to grapple with it because it just seems so absurd to me. I've been in the field long enough to, to realize that, sure, things can look really impressive, and they're not always very impressive. Like sometimes they're impressive for really interesting reasons that aren't the reasons that you think. And so just because it can do this thing, just because it can, you know, drive around a track, the car, you know, the computer can drive a car around the track, doesn't mean it can do everything that your teenager can do when driving around the track. So so you, you it, it's a very natural human response, I think, to extrapolate from seeing that behavior to thinking okay that's really on the on the path to you know world dominance and so that that was kind of the theme of of the symposium is trying to think through okay well, what's the deal with this and so my question to the people who were saying this is a real concern just to try to wrap my head around it was to say well what is what is the actual argument is the argument that the machines are they're super powerful? They're solving problems really well, and they're going to wake up one day and think, "You know what's annoying? People." And then, and then they'll be our biggest enemy. And what the argument that we heard at they that- are annoying?
2: No, they would be right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, people are the worst,
1: yeah, for different reasons, and 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 in ways that probably, hopefully, the rest of us aren't thinking. Yes, we should eliminate everyone. Yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, not
2: the follow up thought I have when I get annoyed by someone in a queue. Like, <laughs> must eliminate.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that, right. People can be really annoying, but like eliminating everyone and turning them into paperclips seems like maybe the wrong response. And so. At the workshop, in trying to understand what the position was of the people who were really concerned, I came to understand that it wasn't they're super intelligent and therefore they know that we're a nuisance and should be eliminated, but that more that they're super intelligent, but they don't really understand what they're supposed to be doing, what we intended them to do, and they misunderstand it in a way that actually blows up in our face. And To me, the analogy that made sense was... Like if you're raising a child, the child, the baby doesn't really know what you want and what you don't want, but they can't do that much damage because they're very small and sort of discoordinated. If you imagine a giant, like 17 story tall baby, even if it doesn't really understand what to do, it's still extremely
2: powerful and it can make mistakes. I want this movie. I want to see this movie ever since you said that. And I was trying to think, I think it's even occurred in my head, that must be maybe a movie. And I think it's just from Michael Lippman's mind, the attack of the... And because I think you also had some, you, you, had you written an article in the New Yorker? Do I remember that correctly? So you had some great drawings from the art from the New Yorker. I don't remember if it was your article that you were showing as well.
1: Oh, oh! So at that symposium, I sort of live while I was listening to the talks and again trying to grapple with this question of what is it that people are afraid of. I tried to. I, I made an illustration of the future of AI, and I and I I riffed on the famous New Yorker cover. Picture, which is a New Yorker's view of the world, which shows basically you know, the near term, like you're, you're standing on a corner in New York City and there's all sorts of detail within the block that you're standing, and then less detail of other parts of New York, and then very little detail of New Jersey, and then way off in the distance, Japan, right? So, like it, things as they get further and further away, you're kind of seeing them less and less accurately. And I thought that's very much what we're talking about in trying to envision the future of AI. We get the stuff that's happening right now, but then we start extrapolating pretty aggressively and so in my illustration i i have like okay there's like um the disappointment avenue that we're going to cross at some point and then like they're going to understand how to solve the av problem before we can solve the ai
2: problem you know things like that i love the av problem is brilliant i i, I always <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the thing i think about a lot from that the, the
2: robots will the robots will take over the world but not be able to present to each other well i guess they <laughs> be, won't like, be using wait, just a second wait i think i have the wrong cable <laughs> okay, yeah, so has anyone got the uh, adapter that <laughs> should be that's the okay, super intelligent apple like... change
1: their connector again
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is the uh to be honest i think a lot of these ideas come from people who haven't been close to technology and not that that's a bad thing maybe the people who haven't been close to technology really have the context right but my sense is that the context is it's hard to tell right because on one hand i see these people who haven't been close to technology and they're coming up with these ideas that just seem so broken for so many very simple reasons but then on the other hand you know you can be too close I mean, but if you're too close, you may not see the thing that they see because they're st- they've are they got the 30,000 foot point of view. You're so busy trying to create your little thing that you don't realize the downstream consequences. That definitely happens. But what I think is disturbing is that the context they see often is like, no, the real bad thing that's going to happen is this other big thing that you're not aware of because you don't have the sort of detailed understanding. But I thought, yeah, it was a great presentation as your presentations very often are. So. The the human side to me is extremely important actually in avoiding exactly what you brought up. Like that because I, I still see the machine as a tool. In fact, for me it was a sort of an informative thing, I think, in sort of 2014, when we suddenly became artificial intelligence. I, I was like, well, actually, I just build tools and try and solve problems. I'm a sort of an engineer. And and then I found that there were all these other people who emerged from the woodwork around me, people I'd known for a long time, who were trying to create intelligence. But I still feel it's a tool, and actually, it's about how you make it usable for a human, and that strikes me that that's what you're sort of getting at with the humanity centered.
1: Yeah, I, I, well, it's it's why I think I fit with the humanity centered robotics initiative at Brown is because that that is my perspective. But but I think you're right. I think one of the things that drew me to thinking about people in the loop in the learning process is because we we. We kind of have to have that in the long run. It has to be the case that these systems are kind of aligned with our actual desires. And doing that in a very hands off way is possibly impossible. It may be the case that you just can't, you know, write down a logical formula and say, great, this is everything you're ever going to need to know. Put it in the computer, nirvana, right? It seems like the more. Plausible scenario is that there's going to be an interactive process whereby the machines respond and the humans direct, and the humans respond, and 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 it's more of a system, right? Than it is a an input output relationship.
2: I totally agree. Maybe I maybe I shouldn't agree too much for the sake of, uh, but uh, it it just resonates with me so strongly because I think also something we talked about in talking machines uh, recently was something I call the great AI fallacy, which is because like. Like me, you're probably asked to define artificial intelligence a lot. And I didn't really have to think about that until I kept on getting asked to define it. And it's quite hard to define because it means different things to different people. But one way, when I try and distill it, I think that people are promising something that for the first time is, is going to adapt to us in ways that we just haven't seen before through automation. And I don't think they're explicitly saying that, but I think they just talk about it implicitly. And this feels to me very dangerous because then that means you don't design with the human in the loop because you think, well, it's going to be fine. It's just going to interact with people. Whereas the history of things says, well, it's actually the effect they have on their human operators who have to adapt to the entity that is important. I don't know if that resonates with you. So, so, to, so what's the essence of the fallacy then? The essence of the fallacy is that we're designing and building something that will adapt to us and accommodate us in in its actions. Whereas the reality is that we're just building another thing that humans will have to adapt to and operate as a tool. And I think that the the fallacy feels dangerous because this is an additional promise previous or eras of automation. I think it's been accepted well and humans will have to accommodate this thing. Whereas now this this new wave is like, oh no and it's going to be fine. It's just going to just gonna do stuff you want, like some sort of Jeeves butler.
1: Right. And the fact of the matter is we haven't seen that ever happen, right? As soon as you put some kind of adaptive system out into the world, the first thing that happens is people figure out how to game it, (laughs) right? People figure out how to adapt to the system to make it behave the way they want it to behave, Uh, which is not necessarily what the machine was trying to do in the first place, but people change their behavior to better
2: manipulate the machine. Like uh, Google search. Like Google search. Search engine optimization. And, and, And what started as a simple algorithm and then has become probably immensely complicated and impossible to interpret in order to stop people gaming. it.
1: Right, right, right. So you, you, like uh, search engine optimization sort of gaming, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly so. And and um, I mean, you you, re- you can read about the ways that people are gaming YouTube, for example, where they'll say, okay, I want my video to come up and be seen by as many people as possible. To the extent that I understand the algorithm that's trying to figure out how to recommend things, I can make my video, like check all the right boxes so that it actually will show up very high on the list. So you get kind of a search engine, optimization for for video views and recommendations and the fact that that's having happening on the other users can be actually quite detrimental like that's where the fallout actually lands the people providers
2: manipulate the algorithm the algorithm manipulates the users the users are crushed I th- I think that's why I like your big baby analogy so much and and in my head I think I've conflated it with your New Yorker picture so in my head the big baby's always stomping around New York like the in New York, yeah. Oh, you know, like, in
1: New York. I like that.
2: Yeah, I could draw
1: that. I, or somebody who can draw no, better can draw, draw that. No, you draw first.
2: I, I want you to draw it. It's your thing. <laughs> it's your baby, as it were. <laughs> ah, very nice. <laughs> that image, I think, very nicely reflects that. And it's something that I think that we've seen with social media in terms of all the effects we're seeing around um, – One of the things I worry a great deal about with the social media stuff is say, oh, it's to do with political advertising, it's to do with people manipulating things. It's like, well, actually, it's just to do with the way we're doing stuff now, that we've deployed something at scale and people will work out how to manipulate it. And fixing it in one area just means it will pop up in another area. And I see that as a very that's why I like the big baby thing so much. It's like, and it's not, you not know, people are evil. It's not be, that they're intending it. It's systemic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, so it's kind of system level thinking is actually
1: really hard, right? So the, the sort of thing that says, I'm going to put something out into out into the world and I'm going to put it out at scale. And th- therefore it's going to have influence at scale and it's going to change people's behavior at scale. It's so hard to foresee what that's going to be. It's just riddled with unintended consequences. One thing that made me feel well, good and bad, I want to say is I, um, I attended, a, a workshop within Google called Next Generation Recommendation Systems. And it was, you know, half Google engineers and half uh, academics. And the academics were just chock full of really creative and interesting ideas of ways that we can think about recommendation and adaptation in new and different ways. And pretty much every idea that put out there, there was some weathered Google engineer who just shook his or her head and said, you're not considering the systemic consequences of that like that sounds like a really good idea but if you iterate that in your mind just a couple steps you're going to see society comes undone like anything you suggest that's that that is of this form there's going to be a way that people are going to leverage it to actually hurt each other and we don't want to be a part of that. Now, it could be that the reason they know they don't want to be a part of that is because they were a part of it, right? They actually had some very negative consequences with earlier iterations of the technology, but I'm sure that that wasn't what they wanted to do. I think that's just, it's just hard not to do it. And I think they know better now, but that doesn't mean that they know how to solve it now because it is super hard.
2: And I think that even some of the sensible solutions you have, as you say, the systemic thinking is hard and even the best processes we have like A-B testing are sort of short-term and limited and don't really give you the downstream consequences in two years' time. And of course, because they give you a number, people will optimize towards that number. Uh, And I think that that makes things very hard. And it seems seems actually really difficult to deal with, which is why I find the humanity-centered so fascinating. Because when you say humanity-centered, you're kind of taking that on. If I say human-centered, it's like, well, I can work after Bob, but you know... You're saying humanity said, "Oh well, I've got to deal with Alice, Bob, Eve. I can't remember all the other people in the signal processing books." <laughs> Frank, <laughs> yeah, yeah. George, Henrietta. Oh, right, back to reinforcement learning. One of the things I think super interesting about that, for when I was, I think we're sort of contemporary. What was your first Europe? So that's like uh, the question to tell. First year, where? First year at Europe's. Uh, Nineteen
1: eighty nine. I want oh to say. Oh my god,
2: you are so much older than me. I mean, sorry. No, you're, well, you're, you're, I was you're, very <laughs>
1: young at the time, but thanks. I guess.
2: <laughs> I didn't know that. I kind of thought you were the same generation as me. I was. No, but I I'm was. 96. That was before grad school. That was before I went I before grad school. So you're one of yeah. these. America has a lot of these wonder kids. I was reading about Vina recently. You're like a <laughs> yeah, that Vina. That have not been called. But okay, the pre-graduate school. Okay, so um, but we're, we're not too dissimilar generation. What I always sticks in my head. Was those first Europe's I went to is the people who did reinforcement learning had the best presentations because they had videos of cars going up hills. <laughs> um, you know, and backwards and had, forwards.
1: But now we have Atari too. Yeah,
2: now you have Atari as well. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about because you have done this for an amount of time. Um, but in some sense, at the moment when it's it's got super hot and people all want to do Atari and goal and all this stuff, you're branching into a, a slightly different direction with the human side. What was your motivation for that? Was this an emerging thing? Was it a reaction to the sort of increase in interest in the field or or, or just?
1: I, I had a student when I was at Rutgers named Kaushik uh, Subramanian, and and he, um, he said, I want to do this kind of learning from people stuff. And I said, that's stupid. We don't do that. And he just, the next week he came back and he said, okay, here's my next idea about that. And I'm like, it's still stupid. Don't work on that. And then he just, he did it like six or seven times until I'm finally like, okay, I see an interesting problem there. And then I got drawn in. And so, uh, you know, this was 2011-ish, so thereabouts, 2010, 2011. So so this was before the things got hot. Uh, I was still at that time when I was teaching reinforcement learning, getting up in front of people and saying... Okay, just to make sure you're not in the wrong place, this is different than supervised learning, right? <laughs> because like, I've always felt like students coming to the class, they were expecting, you know, not w- what I was going to tell them about. But now, yeah, now you're right. It is kind of hot. The people come to my class because they actually want to know about reinforcement learning, which is crazy. So no, I don't think I think I'm still feeling true to my roots. I don't think I'm branching out so much as um, as I'm not going down uh, you know you know a road that I think has an awful lot of engineering and compute cycles in it that I can't actually compete with. But I always was interested in in agents that were learning kind of in their lifetimes, and a lot of the the really amazing reinforcement learning feats that have happened in the last uh, five ten years involve an awful lot of compute and a lot and, and like effectively 80 years of video game experience. And like, that's not how people learn. That's not how animals learn. Like that's, it's super amazing that we can do this at all, but we're still missing the t- the, the target.
2: Well, you said the data efficient, efficient expo- exploration, which I do think is... I mean, I'm fascinated by explore exploit. I haven't really done anything, but
1: I think it comes down to representation, even even more primally than the exploration issue. Is just you have to represent the world the right way, and if you represent the world, your state representation, yeah, that's right. Yeah, what is it? What do you? What is the world that you're living in?
2: It's a difficult question, isn't it? Because it always strikes me. I mean, like there's some. Well, yeah, there's uh, there's some optimal state representation where the answer is, mm, and you know, it comes out in one iteration, and then there's but there's this weird, yeah you know that's right. i'm not into agi but when i think that they're saying something sane the thing that i think that they're saying that might be sane is that there should be some form of general representation f- for doing a large number of tasks I-, I feel that that's a sort of that's a question i can get my head around that feels like yeah i mean is that what you're driving at not AGI, but the state representation. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think the field is
1: there yet. I think that we have to look at some of these learning problems differently than what's currently working really well. Like it's working really well. So it's very hard to to distance yourself from it. But at the same time, I think we have to get a little distance from it to be able to do better. But it's
2: working real well for crazy. I mean, I find it totally off-putting, actually, because it's working really, really well, if we're talking about the same stuff, for immense amounts of data, unimaginable amounts of simulated data. And... well i myself i can't separate it in my head is it that i just don't want it to be the solution that we're going to just do this extraordinary simulation or do i really think it's not going to be the solution
1: you know you're asking me to about what you're
2: thinking well yeah because you know about inverse reinforcement learning and so therefore i thought if i gave some (laughs) behavior then you could explain a very strong theory of mind
1: Yes, I think you don't want this to be the solution because it's not actually the solution. That that there's there, there's something else going on. It's not it's not as brute force. There's a lot of brute force. You, you'd hope that it's but not. But it's force. not it's not as brute force as 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 what is, you know, carrying the weight right now. You, you we have to there has to be a little bit more finesse. And um, and I think that I think that comes about, well, I think that we have more hope in reinforcement learning to get it to come about the right way than in a lot of other fields, uh, subfields of machine learning, because I think it comes about partly from the interaction with the world, right? That you actually can, the agents need to be able to think about hypotheses about, you know, I think this is a good way of thinking about the world and then let the world prove them wrong, right? By actually acting according to that. I think machine vision systems, for example, they can come up with a really crazy way about the way they think the world works. And it could be good enough to make incredibly good predictions, but still be wrong. And it's only when you actually feed it back and say, okay, I'm going to now make decisions based on those inferences when you start to realize how wrong it is.
2: No, I think that that's a really good way of thinking about it. I'm seeing a few questions coming in have you been monitoring and, and, and perhaps got a, a few good ones
0: yes definitely uh, before we before we turn to our audience questions Michael I wanted to take a sort of down a, a left turn here you'd mentioned a number of years ago <laughs> you'd mentioned a number of years ago at the top of the class saying to people you know make sure you're in the right place because this this isn't supervised learning um you are also currently teaching as as the entirety of your university is doing remote remote learning under Lockdown. How is that going for you? How? Tell me about the, how that experience has been.
1: Well, thanks so much for asking. It is definitely on my mind a lot now. And in fact, the term remote learning is aspirational <laughs> because all I know is that I'm remote teaching. I don't know so much about how the learning's going. It's been, it's, been a, it's been quite an adventure. So I'm, I'm sitting right now in my what was my son's room and is now my studio, where I've got lights set up and an uh, up-mounted camera and a kind of a teleprompter kind of thing and little tablets all over the place so I can kind of check in on Zoom with the participants list and also the hand raising. And so I've got like one screen's not enough. So I've got like six different screens showing different parts of, the, of, of what's going on in the class. It started off very, very rough. I think the students were themselves very stressed. And they very much took it out on on me and the class. I got some very, very harsh feedback about not understanding what people are going through because I wanted to keep the class as consistent as I could. And I think in some cases that was interpreted as, well, don't you understand? You can't keep it the way it was. The world has changed and that's not what i meant when i said i was keeping it the same i meant that that i wanted to make sure that the material you know that I was being true to the material because this is a, a fundamental class as part of the the computer science sequence but anyway but people were very uptight and 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 lashed out quite a bit now that the semester is about to wind down people are starting to feel a little love <laughs> which is nice um, and so i i i've gotten email from students in the class who had previously taken me to task who are now like, you know what? You worked your butt off. the The staff of the class. I've got uh, three really great head TAs. I've got like ten or fifteen under, undergraduate TAs who are who are helping out and and doing a lot of the class interaction, grading the assignments, and so forth. And um, they are working really hard. And I think the students are starting to realize, yeah, okay, we're 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 going to get through this. We're going to get. We're going to be okay.
0: So do you feel like after having done this class um do you feel like the the context changes the content? I mean you came into it saying you know the most thing the most important thing is going to be continuity, right? So that we can have flow of information, flow of this foundational information in the same way that I know works and I know is going to get people to to get it. But do you feel like the the context has that much impact?
1: It's it's hard to say I think at this point. I don't think I have all the data to really Be able to be super confident about it, but you know. So so, what are we comparing? So this was a class of three hundred students. They would come to class and sit in the lecture hall close together, so close together. (laughs) um, And I would and I would be you know in a pit looking up at them you know doing my doing my shtick, and they weren't getting a lot of me time. They weren't. They were you know it's 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 hard. They weren't. It was still good. You know this kind of mass delivery system, but still the cues were there right so it was still possible to 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 understand like to read the room and to know when people are uncomfortable or know when people are confused to know when people just you know want me to get on with it and those cues are now completely missing so i've i've kind of likened it to you know i can walk across campus blindfolded but it's going to be really inefficient and i'm going to be exhausted afterwards and that that's how i've been feeling lecturing kind of with my blindfold on I can't feel their pain. And so it's, it's very difficult. uh, And I feel like I'm working extra hard for that. Does that change the content? You know, I don't think so necessarily, but we have to learn how to get the, how to get that connection to happen so that the, so that the knowledge gets transferred and they can, they can, they can learn.
0: Yeah, we've lost like serendipity and and intuition, I guess, with this or at least they're much further removed because now everyone is in the context where you are, where you're like literally sitting in your bedroom, but now you're literally sitting in your bedroom in front of 300 people. So,
2: <laughs> but that, I think that that experience is going to vary a little bit because you you're also someone who's got a very intuitive sense for an audience. I, I don't think all computer science lecturers <laughs> have quite that sense certainly that's not been my experience being not like statistician
1: two. philosophers they have that sense I,
2: <laughs> I think it's no it's a yeah the statistician philosopher is the ultimate highly emotional intelligence exactly exactly when they, when they're not counting philosophical statements there they are. <laughs> being emotionally intelligent. Actually, I did a test once. I used to think I was very highly emotionally intelligent, but then I did one of these tests. I think it was like a a various, it had some IQ and EQ stuff in it. And I did really quite well on the IQ. You know, I don't want to brag, but I did well. And (laughs) I I, I don't want to brag too much, but I was really excellent. You're going to brag a little bit. I was amazing, actually. And then I I did this, oh, an emotional one. I'm really like, I'm quite good at, you know, you know, and it was some test where you had to look at two faces and say whether they were making the same expression and i came like bang on the mid percentile 50%. Yeah. 50%. No okay 50%. so now
1: that's mid percentile for the population this that's is probably not like mid percentile for computer scientists. I
2: like where you're going. I thought male computer scientists this means you are some kind of emotional yeah, superstar. Superstar, you know, empathetic and just wonderful. Yeah, but but it did make me think oh wow so 50% of the population are much better at this than me. <laughs>
0: Well, let's, uh, let's start to one of our listener questions. So uh, we've got a couple of them, and but uh, Andrew asks, in your last appearance on Talking Machines, you described a human-in-the-loop system, like COACH, for learning behaviors on robots. How might this scale up to the complexity of something like a portal level? And I, Andrew, if you're still with us, I, I, a little bit of explanation there might be helpful, which has longer time horizons than walking in a figure eight and more sub-goals. Is it just a matter of sitting there for longer and giving dense rewards for a while? or do we need to incorporate environmental feedback with explicit sub-goals or another approach entirely?"
1: Yes. No. That's a, so. That's a great question. So the portal, if in case there's no context for that, the portal level, I th- I think he's referring to an example that I gave in my uh, TEDx Boston talk that you helped oversee, Catherine. And in particular, I used an example there of kind of leveling up, learning learning about something, and then using what you learn to build up to higher levels of competence. And that the video game portal does a really nice job of getting people into that space, to getting people to get better and better and better at the game by offering them challenges that build on the challenges that they just solved. And so I was using that as an example of how we how we work up to building intelligent machines, not by giving them a really hard problem and then hoping that they just solve it, but giving them a series of problems, interacting with them over time and, and increasing the level of challenge and difficulty. And I, and so that was the that was the story that I told then and I I still believe in that. The thing that I didn't talk about then and I think that Andrew is helping to point out is that the the role of representation in that. And that's something that that I had said to Neil earlier today as well, that I think that none of this works unless you have kind of the right way of breaking up the world into its component pieces so that as you understand how those pieces fit together, you start to build up more sophisticated pieces that themselves can be part of even larger pieces. And I am not, I mean, there's, Bits bits of that happening in deep learning research these days, but it is really I think it's still quite primitive. It's not something that we can do at at the level of of the way that humans break up the world into components. And I'm not claiming that I've got that, and I'll, I'll wheel it out next week. Uh, but that's that's what I'm striving towards understanding because I think that's where that's where the next level of competence upgrade happens.
2: Do you think that that's also very contextual in terms of how we choose to break up? The world given a particular problem. Yeah,
1: right. And I think I think people also exploit multiple representations, right? And so so people who are really good at solving certain kinds of problems don't have just one way of looking at that problem. They have a, a, a half dozen, a dozen. and they they can very easily kind of transition between these representations while they're they're working. The the computer science model is, you know, you write the program top down and there's modules and they interact the way that you write them to interact. And so we we like this kind of one way of breaking up the world and that works really well for us for engineered systems, but for these systems that need to be complex and and, and interact with all the various, various ways that the real world can behave, I don't think that works. I think you actually need multiple interacting representations.
0: Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on Talking Machines. I really appreciate it. It was a great pleasure to
2: have you. Thanks so much,
1: Michael. I like this format a lot. It was it was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much
2: again for asking.
0: That is it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
2: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: Tune in next episode.